I got some help and I had someone who became my navigator and then my husband became my caregiver. You know, so so I know what it's like to be on both ends. And and I I think that it's so critical that people understand that we need these caregiver and these CHW services to be respected. We need them to be fully reimbursed. We need to recognize the power of a caregiver. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with Denise Smith, who is the Executive Director of the National Association of Community Health Workers. In addition to her professional passions, she enjoys watching mystery shows with her daughter and spending quality time with her family. Thank you for joining me today, Denise. You had an early introduction and exposure to health advocacy. So tell us a little bit about your mom's activism and how that planted a seed in you. Yeah, I love to because my mom is still teaching me and guiding me now in my journey as a professional. So I'm going to say that by the time I was 11 years old, my mom became a really uh, powerful and significant advocate for people living with HIV AIDS. She's a very quiet person, but she had a really strong sense of value a really strong sense of equity. And as a young person, she, you know, wanted very much for me to understand that stigma was not a fact, that fear was not fact, and that I was being raised not only to love, but to respect and to really protect in solidarity with other people. As I continued my journey, and at the time I was uh, an artist, you know, sort of full-fledged and exploring my art and activism in my art, my mom continued in her work in HIV. And sooner or later, I found that my art and my activism would collide again. Most of my work as a CHW and a good portion of it as an artist has focused on this issue of people living with HIV AIDS, of people having non-factual based fear and apprehension of people living with HIV AIDS, of people creating stigma and bias, um, and of people having challenges accessing quality and respectful health care. I love that story. Start them young, you know, and now here you are. And I did that with my children, you know, with all of, I have three sons and I have one daughter. Each of them would do street outreach with me when I started doing that as an HIV outreach worker, you know, setting up tabling, you know, on the street corners and going into the basement of churches and handing out flyers. And for a time with the help of my husband, we ran a food pantry for about two and a half years My young sons would carry the food and greet people and sign them up. And so you're absolutely right that what I learned in terms of respect and and also of really participating, getting in, you know, uh, with community was something that I wanted to pass on to my kids as well. And how do you feel like all that you have learned from your mother and your early experiences led you to the path that you're on now of becoming a community health worker? I think that I settled into community health work because of a lot of art that I was doing. And, 
you know, there's the power of art, particularly, you know, art that is used to create impact and change, right? Not just to entertain. I, you know, was fortunate to be connected to artists who shared difficult life experiences, you know, as I did. And coming together and saying that we recognize that we still had privilege, right? That we were artists, that we had a voice. And to be able to bring that voice, those experiences and reflect the power of coming together, the power of advocacy, the power of expression in community uh, caused us to bring our art, you know, into different places. So we would, you know, as I mentioned, go to sort of town squares and out into parks to do our art and into community centers to do our art. And, you know, in different project housing, they might have a community room or just an open air sort of courtyard and to do our art there. And I had a strong connection to wanting to be present in that space with community discussing and wrestling with difficult issues in a creative way. I watched my mom as a a Black woman having, you know, real challenge running an organization, raising money for that organization, you know, funding her staff, making sure that the voices of the clients in the community that her staff was representing, you know, could really be amplified in a way that would impact change having to speak truth to power, you know, and to say, you know, we don't want to do it this way. And this is why it's not inclusive. It's not equitable. And even when she ended up working in the Department of Health, you know, having really challenging conversations with bureaucracy and with state government. And I watched that, you know, and again, she did it in a very quiet way, but it was really impactful. And my mom, you know, created space for me to see that as a woman of color, I could be both sort of activist and creative and right, sort of live my passion and my beliefs, but that I could also impact change and that I could also build organizations and structures that could impact change. And as I mentioned, you know, in my current position now, I'm a, I'm a CHW, but I'm also an executive director now. And that is largely because my mom modeled that I could do it. You said that so beautifully about the impact that you want to have, you know, and the change that your mother basically empowered you to realize, you know, and to be able to harness and take boldly into every room, into every role, into every title that you have. That's just a lifelong lesson for a lot of other people, parents to learn as well, um, you know, how to empower their children with those tools that they can take with them, you know, for the rest of their lives. For people who aren't as familiar with community health workers, you know, what key roles do CHWs play in accessing care for their communities? The American Public Health Association lifted up a definition of CHWs, and they have really, at the national level in the U.S., they have really championed some strong policies in support of community health workers. And embedded in their definition of who CHWs are is the word trust. And I want to center on that, and I'll come back to that, because I don't know if there is another profession for which the very definition of the profession has the word trust or trusted, right? So I think that's very significant. We are trusted because of a sort of set of identities, right? Now they don't have to be the same. If I had another CHW sitting next to me, 
we might not share the same identity, ethnicity, culture, right? Geographic location, but among the communities where we live and serve, right? Whether I am serving a community who is a survivor, you know, of rare chronic disease, I am a survivor of a rare chronic disease. If I am serving a community of uh, women of African descent, Black American women with high blood pressure, you know, I am a person who lives with high blood pressure. We have a deep shared experience that grounds our identities. Uh, Oftentimes, if I'm writing, I may say, just as a level set, that community health workers, and then sometimes in parentheses, I will say, including promotoras and community health representatives and peers, right? Outreach specialists and at least 50 different work titles that we've been able to identify where those people may identify as a CHW, a person with a trusting relationship with the community and a shared experience with the community where they live and serve. You're so right when you said I don't know if there's any other, you know, titles out there that have trust rooted in the definition of that. Sometimes people who have shared lived experiences don't always have your best interests at heart. You know, mm-hmm. so as a CHW, how do you build trust with the the communities and people that you serve? This is such an awesome question. I'm so enjoying this exploration. A few months ago, the National Association of CHWs receive a grant from an organization called the Connecticut Choosing Wisely Collaborative. The high level focuses on improving patient and provider conversations about cost, about treatment options, right? Sort of promoting a shared decision-making. The Connecticut Choosing Wisely Collaborative, as they were doing their work, were recognizing the power of trust. So NACHWA right now, we have pulled together CHWs, along with some health advocate leaders, some patient safety leaders, some nurses, and we have come together to explore how it is that community health workers are unique in building trust. Our CHWs and our partners are developing an interview guide, and we're going to be conducting focus groups with patients and with CHWs about what is happening in these CHW patient relationships where they both recognize that we trust, we're trusting one another. And so we did a a mind mapping activity just to sort of start building the interview guide. And it was fascinating, the things that were coming forward, the language that people were using, the sense that folks cared and had compassion the respect that people showed to their client or their patient's opinions and health beliefs, the time that people took, right, to listen to stories and not to direct so much as to amplify what your goals are, right, what your questions are, you know, what your needs are, to to walk alongside someone and not to sort of say, I know better than you or You know, I'm the professional here, which is sometimes what we hear uh, from doctors or other health providers. Hey, I'm the expert. You know, you came to me. So very soon we'll have, you know, some exciting data on what really happens in these relationships. I appreciate the concept that you shared about 
walking alongside someone. And this whole season is about caregiving. And what you explained to me, you know, in the ways that you build trust and listen to people and and really understand them and, and basically hold their hand on this journey, that is a form of caregiving, you know, on a more professional slash systemic level. So can you share a little bit about, you know, that relationship that CHWs have with caregiving for their communities and the people that they serve? A few months ago, I believe before now President Biden took office, he put out a statement and it was about building back better. And in the document, he mentioned quite prominently and often both community health workers and caregivers. I reached out to my uh, peers, my colleagues who are caregivers, and I said, you know, what do you think about this? It's a recognition that achieving your health goals is a very personal, intimate experience that it requires trust and relationship and time, right? And and it has to be culturally appropriate and aligned with your health beliefs and 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 shared in its power. Not all CHWs are working in health systems, so we don't always use the term sort of patient or client. Uh, many of us are working in the community through nonprofit organizations or promotora uh, networks or CHW sort of coalitions. So a lot of times we're working in the community and we're working to address the social drivers of well-being, housing, food insecurity, right? Uh, mental health, you know, accessing of services, navigating of benefits, helping people to gain access to Medicaid or healthcare coverage. And in the process of administering those services or um, advocating or navigating, there are many opportunities for CHWs to step into that caregiver role. For us, it is, yes, walking alongside It is not the case that people, whether they're sick or in whatever state they're in, that does not mean that they don't want to be involved. They want to cultivate and develop their own voice and make sure that they're heard. And so we also take on that advocacy role to make sure that we are creating space and that that provider understands that we might be in the room, but you're not talking to us to get to the patient or client. You're talking to the patient or client. And our job is to maybe hold the conversation and say, let's stop for a moment and let's see, how do you feel about that? You know, was that, was there anything that was unclear? And, you know, Ashley, I talk about this and, and can get sort of intimate about this experience because when I was going through the seven or eight years of my own process to survivorship, uh, my own experience living with a very rare chronic disease that became profoundly debilitating for myself and my family. At one point, I was told that, you know, I was on a trajectory, a sort of slow decline that had a a very dark end through a a series of very fortunate uh, events. And I absolutely credit uh, Dr. Harold Freeman. I reached out to him sort of in desperation because I had been living with this disease for quite some time and things were not getting better I felt like I wasn't getting the right care, but I couldn't really articulate why. I felt like, hey, I'm smart. You know, hey, I feel like I'm asking the right questions. But when you're living through that experience, the anxiety, the stress, the multiple responsibilities. I was a mom at the time. I had had a new baby. 
I was just overwhelmed. And of course I was living with the pain and the medications. And so I got some help and I had someone who became my navigator and then my husband became my caregiver, you know? So, so I know what it's like to be on both ends. And, and I, I think that it's so critical that people understand that we need these caregiver and these CHW services to be respected. We need them to be fully reimbursed. We need to recognize the power of a caregiver. I have a dear friend of mine here in Connecticut who was a caregiver for 18 years with her husband as a result of medical error. She, through that experience, became such an expert that she can now help other caregivers, right? And she's now leading the Connecticut Center of Patient Safety. We need our faces and our voices and our insights to be embedded in and to lead this sort of transformation that I think we all talk about when we talk about equity and eliminating disparities and achieving positive health outcomes. But these systems and these providers cannot do it without us. We hear this word health equity thrown around constantly, you know, but what does it mean for you and why is it so central to providing good health care? One of my dear friends, Alexandra Quinn from Health Leads, she'll often say, you know, this moment, this COVID moment can become a movement. Equity has to be at the center of our solutions. And so the question is like, number one, why is it taken so long? And what's it going to take for us to finally make this decision? The first piece, why has it taken so long, for me, centers on the issue of race. Now, race and class are very closely linked in the United States. So I really want to talk about them together. It is not the case that every person who is living in poverty is a person of color. That is certainly not the case. And sometimes that is a myth, right? That it's a welfare mom or, you know, that's someone who doesn't want to work or that that sort of thing. That is not the case. There are people of all walks of life who are now living in poverty. Some who are working two jobs who are finding themselves in poverty. But disproportionately, race has become so embedded across our systems and policies that it facilitates these sort of, you know, impenetrable barriers that make it so much more difficult for us to access the resources, the information, the services that we need. Part of equity is a distinction and sort of a recognition that everybody doesn't need the same thing. That making sure that communities have what they need means that you consider the history of those communities. The next question is like, well, what is it going to take? We're going to have to reconcile ourselves with whether or not health is a human right. We are going to have to decide if that's a value that we are going to pursue promote, protect, right? Build for in reflection of our value. We're going to have to reconcile with what we know the science tells us. And the science tells us that up to 80% of what impacts a person's health and well-being 
happens outside of a doctor's office. It happens outside of clinical treatment. It happens, you know, outside of getting a prescription. We are going to have to reconcile with the way in which race impacts people's ability to pursue, to gain access to, to traverse, navigate, and achieve the health goals that they set for themselves. We have these conversations, you know, in different environments at different times with different types of people, but we don't yet have that national momentum, not just the call, but the commitment to make that shift. As the executive director for the National Association of Community Health Workers, you know, what are some of your most important goals for your organization as you look towards the future, you know, of, like you said earlier, turning this COVID moment into a movement? The number one goal is for us to be relevant, inviting, and connected to our members. We are a young organization who is stretching out our hands, if you will, and inviting folks to come in under this unifying umbrella. We recognize that CHWs, promotoras, community health representatives have been doing the work for many decades and, you know, it's less known for hundreds of years. And that expertise, those organizations, those individuals, we want to join hands with because we think that there is a unique positioning for a national association that can bring together these voices across all of these experiences and geographies to make strong, passionate, you know, sort of evidence-based change at the national level. And so we're excited about the potential to have a movement for equity and social justice. So number one is to unite our members, right? To listen to them, to watch what they're doing, to elevate their expertise. And we do that through a lot of different ways. We've recently launched a national policy platform. And that policy platform has been informed by our membership to help them articulate to their local partnerships, their departments of health, their Medicaid offices, their funders, what are the unique qualities and attributes of CHWs? What is our relevance in clinical and community integration to address health equity, to address the social determinants of health, why we're valuable? But it's also a set of guiding policies so that CHWs will be respected, protected on the job, you know, with a living wage, with PPE, with access to the vaccine during the pandemic, with health care coverage. And how can people partner with us? CHWs are doing amazing things. They have always organized on the ground. They have created their own organizations. They are getting together across sector, right? They're creating their own referral networks. You know, they're developing innovations to address health disparity and inequity and to advocate for change at the local, at the county, at the state level. And we're trying to get folks to see like, hey, there's a lot of leadership. There's a lot of capacity. There's a lot of innovation and creativity that's happening here. You know, so hopefully this document, we're going to continue to spread the word about it. 
and use that as a platform to continue to elevate and support our members at the local level. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.